Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. We have a fantastic episode today, one of the mind. We've got Dr. Lev Gottlieb here, who is a neuropsychologist of Gottlieb Neuro. He's also the co-founder of Architects Innovations, as well as being the co-founder of the Integrated Clinic. So he's got a, a lot on his plate. So thank you so much, Dr. Lev, for uh, taking the time to join us today. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. Thanks, Casey. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, really excited to kind of learn more about you and kind of how you got to where you are. Uh, can you just kind of give us an overview of the three main businesses that you're involved in? And then we'll rewind back into how you got there. Sure, of course. So yeah, so I'm a neuropsychologist, or really a pediatric neuropsychologist, just to unpack that a little bit. You know, the pediatric means child, right? So I see people as young as two and someone into their late 30s. And then the neuropsychology is really more the emphasis in my field. So the neuro means brain or neuroscience and psychology we think about as function. So I, the way I think about the career is I, I think about brain to function. So how do we map out someone's mind, explain how they function in their everyday life, and how does that inform their education, their development, their treatment, their rehab, their ability to thrive, their wellness, sort of whatever aim you want to use it for. Sometimes it's in the context of an injury, like, a, you know, God forbid, a head, head injury, stroke, seizure. Sometimes it's in the context of like a neurodevelopmental difference. You know, people who might meet criteria for an attention difference or a learning difference or autism. Sometimes it's with people who are gifted, who just have a different way in engaging with the world and don't always fit the mainstream sort of box and they need help understanding themselves and how to use their strengths or coexist in a world that's a little different than them. Um, and sometimes, again, it's someone who just wants to know about their mind and sort of um, function at their best or at their, their highest level of performance. So that's my field and, with, and within that, I have my practice, which is really for pediatrics, that's sort of zero to almost you know, two to 40, let's say range. That's the Gottlieb Neuro Practice, which is where I function as a clinician. And then the, the clinic is an interdisciplinary team that does speech and language therapy, occupational therapy, physical therapy, cog rehab, sleep and behavioral medicine, biofeedback. So we're doing like functional intervention that's often related to an assessment to allow someone to reach their best. And we can talk a little bit about why we formed that and the purpose of it. And then the last thing is this app we have. We're developing a lot of different tech tools. This is our first one. And it's about a five minute cognitive style test that allows more of a lay person to objectively measure their mind, know what their abilities are and how to use it. It's, a, it's not as much of like, did you do well or not? So our sort of our tag for the, for the app is, you know, it's not how well you do, it's how you do well. You know? So you kind of leave learning about your unique mind and strengths, which is sort of the nature of my field. But instead of looking at it from a pathology perspective, which is a little more what clinicians do and how to help someone, we're looking, everyone has unique abilities and strengths. Let's not focus on what's a challenge for them. Let's just find what they're uniquely good at, help them understand that, and then they can use that in their life. So architects is you know, a combination of architect and cortex. And the idea is like learn your brain and build your life. And so we're moving, we have a clinical sort of emphasis or I do with my practice and with my founder, but we're also moving into uh, tech tools and wellness apps that allow more people to access some of the science um, that we're creating or are a part of. Wow, it's uh, quite a mouthful to take all that in. And just at the high level that you're at with all of this is, is quite mind boggling in itself, excuse the pun. So if we kind of rewind that all back to sure. how you ended up being this amazing doctor in this specific niche helping children and kind of getting into brain activity. Um, going back to when you were at school, what kind of made you go down this path? Yeah, it's a good question. I went to Penn for, um, for my undergrad. I was sort of like, uh, you know, I was sort of a career student. I think I've shifted a little bit as an adult and, and 
definitely more moved into entrepreneurship, partly through the influence of my brother, um, who's sort of a, a very innate and natural entrepreneur. Um, and we can talk about those influences, but I was really sort of a career student. You know, I, I, worked, I worked hard and wanted to do well in schools, and I went to Penn, and I was thinking about, as I was about a junior, I was actually thinking about going into finance. So Penn, you know, has the Wharton Business School. I was taking some classes there. I worked at a hedge fund over a summer. Um, actually really enjoyed it intellectually, but from a resonance perspective, at least at the time of my life, it wasn't really what I wanted to do. And I wanted to work more with people. So the beginning of the story, I guess, is I sort of had a reaction to just data and analytics and also the Facebook revolution that was happening. And I thought I wanted to work more with people. And in the context of that, Penn has a pretty strong site program, especially on a research end. And I started, um, I joined a few colleagues on like treatment outcome studies. So I started to sort of study the outcome from treatment um, if someone uh, had a severe illness. And I found that really engaging. Now, I actually made some pivots later and ended up not being a treatment provider, sort of ironic and sort of moved back to more analytics. But at the time, I wanted to sort of be thrusted into something very present and interpersonal. And that's that was the start of my psychological career. Um, I think there's a, there's a good point there that you were trying lots of different things and trying to figure out what it really was that you were not just engaged with at that moment in time, but really could see as a longer term career path as well. Um, and I think that's a really good point to make because what you thought was, or what you enjoyed at that time is not necessarily where you ended up. So can we talk a little bit about how you then made all of these micro pivots early on? Sure. Yeah, of course. So after that one, and then, you know, I graduated from Penn and I thought either I need to get, I need to get a graduate degree, which was on my head, on my mind. Actually, it's interesting the owner of that hedge fund told me, and I was, you know, I'm young, sort of a little intense, competitive. I was sort of gunning for like the offer of a job after, right? And the guy said on the way out, you know, Lev, you know, you could have a job here, but, you know, um, he, had, he had a Jewish heritage, heritage, and I think it was just part of this. And he said to me, you know, people can, you know, take away your job or your livelihood, but they can't take away your mind. You might want to get like a graduate degree. I mean, I think he was sort of hailing towards like sort of, you know, the Holocaust, not that he was a survivor, but I think it was sort of built into the zeitgeist of his mind that like, you, no one can take away your higher education. So really think about getting a degree. And that, that did resonate with me. Not, I am Jewish and not that that was, not that that's too close to home. I'm so far removed generationally from that, you know, but, but, but he was a very wise person. And that idea of like having a unique asset, which is my mind, uh, resonated with me. So I, I decided to go to graduate school at that point. Now, was I going to go to psychology or business school at the time? I didn't know. But after I had spent some time in the psych department, I had decided at that point I wanted to be in like the helping industries. And so I was either going to move down a psychological career, which actually allows for a stipend and um, financially is a really um, feasible career path if you can get into such a program or go to med school, which would have required doing a post back like two extra years of all the science courses I didn't take which is like 60 grand <laughs> and then about 500 grand to go to med school. And that was enough of a barrier that I, that was really the only reason I didn't do it. Honestly, I was trying to move at that point more into something that was science oriented, a little more removed from just patient care. I wanted to be edified. I sort of wanted the highest possible degree. I saw that as an MD and I, and honestly, if I had access to more resources, I probably would have done it. But the idea of a half a million in debt, it was just um, too, too big for me to wrap my head around. And the, uh, and I was already on the path of a psych degree. And so I went to the NYU Child Study Center, 
which is like a, um, a sort of a research institute to build my CV, publish some as a springboard to get into a PhD program, which ultimately gives you, let's say, 30 grand a year and you don't pay for it. Not that you're living the high life <laughs> as a grad student, but but it's a totally different cost structure. And that's ultimately, I mean, what drove me to make the decision. And, and it, it worked out, but it could have gone a lot of different ways. Fantastic. So then fast forward, going through the studies and then now you graduated, you're in the deep into the psych world, what then brought you into kind of the neuropsychology and specifically with children as well? Yeah, that's a good question. So I was, so I got into a graduate program and, you know, a few years in, um, you start to do clinical like um, practicum where you work with clients. And I worked at a children's hospital in Chicago, which is part of the epilepsy center. And so I, I connected with epileptologists and the whole epilepsy team. And that was actually a way for me to get back into medicine. So it's interesting, there's sort of these push and pulls and different reasons I went the routes I did, but I still had this inkling to do something a little more neuromedical. And so as I was doing therapy and working with people as a clinician in grad school, I had this opportunity, I joined the epilepsy team and I got to talk to neurosurgeons and epileptologists, I got to stop neuroimaging and I could see how like an interdisciplinary team of medical and, and psychological treatment providers and even rehab people would meet talk about a case, look at all these different studies, make decisions based on data, and then help someone with their outcome. And that, that was really appealing to me. So I actually ended up pivoting back towards like a, a more of a medical analytic approach to how I wanted to um, have a career. And that was the start of me moving into neuropsychology because as a neuropsychologist in that role, we were the ones mapping how their minds actually worked in the context of seizures or an injury or someone who had to have a surgery. And that was fascinating to me. How do we take what's like the the anatomy, like what's the function of that neuroanatomy and how is that expressed? And it's almost like a puzzle to sort of predict what's going to happen and what they need. And so solving that became more of an intellectual endeavor, still interpersonal engaging. And then you coordinate plans and other people do the treatment. And that ultimately worked better for me, partly because I realized I'm sort of an impatient guy, <laughs> which I, uh, which again, I didn't know along the way. I thought I would want to be in the trenches with people. What I realized is I wanted to figure out what was happening, make a plan. But I didn't have the patience, and this is my own sort of limitation, but to, to sit so with someone through it week after week, potentially month or year after year until they got there. I was at that, especially at that time in my life, I was someone who when I had an idea, I wanted to manifest it immediately. And I even within my own development, couldn't tolerate sort of the pacing of how emotions tend to work, which is slower, more meandering, more ambiguous. And it was just a space I wasn't um, as connected to. So I moved into this sort of of neuromedical scientific space. Go ahead. Casey. So that, that's actually quite important because now you're, you're learning more about yourself as well <clears throat> along this journey and knowing that, hey, I'm not really enjoying the patient side and the length of seeing the result, but I'm really good at this other side, the neuro side, the creating a plan that, that I think I like, really like the way how you phrased it, solving the puzzle and mapping it out because ultimately that's exactly what you do, but just on a super high level. So I think that's, uh, that, that takes a lot to have that knowledge of yourself and know what your real strengths are and what your real passion is and where, where you're best equipped to be, right? And then focus in on that area. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Right around that time, 
as I was really honing what I should do with my life. I don't know if it's called imposter syndrome. I should know this as a psychologist, but there's some term, you know, where you kind of like you, you uh, people per perceive that you have some ability, but in your own internal sense, you don't feel like you have it. And I may have butchered the term. I'm not actually uh, great with terms and language retrieval, which is another insight about my mind we could talk about, <laughs> but, um, but I get the gist. In any case, um, I had that a lot growing up because I learned later in life, I never met criteria and was never assessed, but probably I have sort of a subtle profile or let's say the phenotype, sort of the genetic expression of what looks like dyslexia. Even though I learned to read and spell, I was always like low average at that stuff. But then I was really exceeding at school and people kept saying, oh, you're so bright. You know, not that this matters that much, but I was back to valedictorian of high school just to give you a sense of how I was like hyper trying to achieve. So I had this sense and getting these accolades like, oh, left so bright. At the same time, I couldn't memorize things that well. I didn't remember language that well. I couldn't read that well, spell that well. So I think all the way through, I felt a little like I'm going to be found out. And that got um, uh, sort of pressed in grad school because grad school is about data analytics, about systems, about code. It's back office. I'm more of a front office person. And so as I got my degree and my advisors wanted me to become a researcher, <laughs> I had this another moment again where I was like, did I overshoot the analytical part? And did I lose sight of the concept or the idea of what I want to be doing? And I actually moved one more time back into being a clinician. Now, I was a neuropsychologist, so I was still figuring out how people's minds work and wasn't necessarily providing treatment week in, week out. So I still got to do the puzzle of it. But I realized I'm better in front of someone, working with clients, giving talks in the community. And I started, that was the point where I realized my career should be translating science to practice. I have enough of a scientific mind. I've been in those worlds enough to know the science that's happening. But there's a way in which I can communicate it to a lay audience, um, which is more my niche and ability than to be the one who's always doing the science. And so I maintained a faculty role at UCLA. I, I went to grad school, fellowship, got on the faculty, but I ended up moving into my own practice and, 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 and helping families and kids figure out what's going on and who to see you know and there's there was a bit of um i found there was a there was a gap there and that the sort of the ivory tower academics who are doing high level research and pushing science forward not that accessible to lay audiences right and then there's clinicians who've never sort of had a hand in that science who are doing often very good work but not always informed by current science and i thought that's my role i'm going to go in and be that person and so i gave a lot of talks the first year just to get myself out there. It really helped me build a practice. And within a year or so, my practice was really growing. You know, five years later, it had grown enough that I needed to think of other ways to scale my time. Which well, let's let's just pause there for a second because there's a lot of good information there. So sure. um, the first thing is you identified what you were really good at, translating kind of this high-level academic speak and helping people really get the right type of help, right? Similar to what we do on the CFO side is translating the numbers of a business and explaining it in a lay term, but at a much higher neural level with yourself. And then you also then realize that there was a gap in the market here because there's not many people that do exactly what you do, where you connect these people, you build a plan, solve the puzzle. But then you had the drive to then create your own practice and now multiple practices, which is fantastic for any doctor and very technology forward as well um, with the app and the other things, which, excuse my saying, is not very uh, prevalent in the PhD or MD world, right? Normally the doctors kind of stay in a practice lane and they don't really shift too much or at least in my experience haven't. So there's... Definitely, I'm seeing this drive that you mentioned from a young age that to keep on progressing and, and pushing forward. How has that translated now 
that you've got multiple businesses that are all doing well and built a foundation after you kind of realized there was this gap in the market? Sure. Yeah, great question, Casey. I mean, you know, this is, you know, my sort of an insight about myself, and I'll try to sort of pull these in as I as they come up naturally. But um, not only do I have some impatience, I have some speediness and almost restlessness, you know, and, and again, for a living, we can talk about minds like 100, you know, 500 domains of things you might see. And, and those are sometimes characterized as negatives, Impa like especially you know, the valence of impatience, restlessness, sort of hyperactive energy, you know, but what I would say is even though there's aspects of that that make life hard for me, you know, fold like because it's just intense sometimes, that is the, the, the engine that was pushing me through a lot of this, plus some sort of parental driven pressure to probably achieve <laughs> that I internalized, right? And so that there's an engine there that has some value. There's certain contexts where those things could be hard or weigh on someone or make them anxious or fatigued or burned out. And that sometimes does happen to me too. But um, that was always pushing me. And I think, I think what I'm always trying to uh, have my head wrapped around is like, um, you know, where am I going to be in several years? And is that place going to be somewhere where, where I'm going to be fulfilled or happy? And as I project these things out every set handful of years, I've had to make pivots because I realized the answer was no to that. You know, and so as I'm running my practice, moonlighting on the weekends, you know, working almost 100 hours a week at one point, and there wasn't really anywhere to go with it starting to turn work away and just feeling burnt out, I realized, you know, I'm not even currently totally enjoying the space I'm in, but certainly this isn't going somewhere that's sustainable. And so as I was thinking about that uh, and the future of medicine and what's happening in um, adjacent fields, you know, with technology and capture of video and audio, it made a lot of sense to me that we should try to be part of the, the sort of AI medicine technological revolution, which is happening, right? I mean, it happened in other industries a little sooner. To your point, clinicians are a little more of the old card and a little slow to adopt some of these things because we go to so much training to do it a certain way. The idea of sort of revamping is um, really effortful and just um, there aren't a lot of systems built in to do that. And so uh, that's where I joined my colleague, uh, Taylor Kuhn, who's also a neuropsychologist, who's as a partnership perspective, and maybe this is a good point to stop and think about where did I hit like um, a bit of a ceiling where if I was going to go to the next level, I needed a partner because this is um, I think that's kind of critical for the next handful of companies I formed. While I probably could have formed them without a partner, I wouldn't have I wouldn't be reaching the levels of success we're starting to find um, without a partner and specifically this partner. And so that maybe is something to talk about. I think as I got into my 30s, I realized how my mind worked and what my strengths were and limitations and sort of ironic i'm in the fee i'm in the industry of knowing that about people and i had done that for thousands of people and still didn't fully know that about myself until again around, around my early 30s i was playing um a neuropsychological olympics game which is sort of a joke but we were all like taking the old tests out and seeing who could win at them basically not that not that that's the point but it was sort of what geeky scientists you know, do and uh and they elected me to put these little pegs on a board. Um, it's called a pegboard test. It's like a fine motor test. And I was a pretty good athlete, not extraordinary, but you know, good enough in a group of doctors. And they elected me to be the person. And I was up against um, this woman who was not really known for being athletic. And I was like, oh, I got this, you know? And I was just like, I'm physical. I'm gonna do really great for my team. And I got crushed, <laughs> just like totally crushed. And I realized I don't have good fine motor skills. And as you know, but that's also so obvious. Like I have terrible handwriting and I never did. You know, and I was good at soccer, but I hit a limitation when the dexterity came in. So it's like, then I look backwards, I'm like, oh, wow, there's a whole storyline to my motor skills.
skills. There's a storyline to my impatience, but also my intensity. And I, there was this moment in my early 30s where that all distilled. It's part of what pushed me to form the practice I did, but it also helped me realize that I, I'm not as strong in the analytics and like, like data informatics, and I don't have as much connection to academia. And so as I was chatting with a friend who became my business partner, we realized we're like um, the perfect sort of yin and yang in that, and that he holds those spaces better. He actually takes more risks than me. He, he's more likely to reach out to people. He's less likely to defend a position. So he's sort of like accelerating the businesses in some ways. And I'm a little more defensive in the posture, make sure it makes sense, think about it more deliberately, conceptually. And so we feed off of each other and that's allowed us to form this clinic, this app, and now an AI company. And we can talk a little bit about how those work, but I think really the, the critical thing for me was getting to know myself and finding the right partner to realize these things. The energy would have been there regardless, but I don't know if they would have manifested. It's funny you should mention that because uh, a lot of the people that we interview uh, on the podcast have said a very similar thing about being very good at what they know or their section and finding that co-founder to kind of be the yin to their yang, as you, as you said, is critical to move into the next level. Like you could get, you could operate very efficiently at this level, but together, when you bring those two minds together and kind of complete each other in different aspects, it really, really does uh, take you to the next level. Can you talk a little bit about how you found this co-founder and realized that he was the, the best person to kind of be the co-founder of the next ventures? You know, it's funny when you talk, when you tell these stories, some of them are a little anticlimactic and they, they sound lucky, you know, so I'll just, but I want to be honest because this is how it happened. Um, I was on fellowship. I was living in an apartment and six doors down, he lived. I mean, it, it, there's so many places near UCLA someone could have lived and he just happened to live on the same floor four doors down. So I saw him on fellowship and then I saw him on the hallway of my apartment building. I was like, what are you doing <laughs> on my floor? And I realized he lived right there. And so we spent two or three years just being friends. In fact, we were both sort of in parallel building our practices. But, you know, I got to know him quite well. And, I, you know, you develop a respect for someone as you see them independently building their career, too. And then we just started riffing, like, on the rooftop about where the field's going. So we were lucky in that way in that I mean, who knows? Maybe there could have been a different partner who, you, you know, proximity sometimes dictates who you get connected to, you know, professionally and personally. But in a lot of ways, that's what it was. Now, the staying power of it and the reason we've not just built one but several businesses was because we were a good partnership. And I think I realized that as we were getting involved, there were things he said to me that pushed me in a way that made me uncomfortable. And I think that as I started to reflect on that, that's what made me realize he was a good business partner. So, for example, we were riffing on this app idea, like, how do we bring this to everyone so people can know their minds, not just people who have resources or an injury? And we, we had an idea of how to do it. And then one day he said, you know, Lev, I just want to do it. Like, I want to do it with you. But if you're if you're not going to do it, I got to I got to do it now. Like he was just more risk taking. And he put me to the fire. It's like, OK, I'm in. I don't know if I would have taken that first leap to start another practice because I was still building my own practice and I was holding on tightly to making it as like he calls it. I built a sequoia and he has all these little like saplings growing, but now he's more diversified. And so as we as we talked about that, he kind of pushed me to do it and, and I joined him. And then I realized over time the sort of the reverse was true, too, like certain aspects of attention to detail. And he'll admit this. He just doesn't have the patience or attentional capacity for it. And so I found myself doing that. And there was one day, I'm sure it'd be fine with me saying this, but I was always like, God, why do I always have to be the one to do this? It's like, oh, that's my, that's my like childhood self telling me that. But I'm always, 
Like that's my role. There are things I'm doing in this company to make sure we're maximizing how perfect things look as much as it's feasible. And his role is to get more business and try new things and do more analytics and push us. So I think through the experience of some frustration, actually, as someone who was always a singular player, realizing I have to rely on someone and that if there are things that someone's not doing, there may be a compensatory strength they're doing and starting to see the whole person and how they fit in with my profile. Um, that That's what got us to this place, I guess, is a, is a partnership, at least from my perspective. I think he has his own take of it, I'm sure. But it was it was realizing, you know, part of it was luck and that we were just next to each other. But the reason we sort of continued to build is that we complemented each other so well. And the realization, realization of that was both was, was really from discomfort, not from a place of, oh, I found the best business partner to fill my gaps. I feel good. It was more, oh, he's pushing me to do things or he's doing things in a way that I'm not comfortable with. Is this wrong? And reflection on that made me realize that I don't need to be so rigidly in my style to be successful. I can hold my style, work with someone, take a little of their style and reach another level of potential. And that's that's how our partnership formed, at least from my perspective. Yeah, I really like it. Blended the good parts of each of you to kind of make that third person together, right? Um, so there's a couple of things that you mentioned there that were really solid. Proximity is power. I'm a big Tony Robbins fan, as the listeners already know. And one of the things Tony Robbins says all the time is, proximity is power. So the fact that this guy lived a few, few doors down on the same floor and was in your fellowship is a crazy coincidence, but I think it played a huge part, right? In then the next point, you built a relationship over a number of years with this person. So you knew him, you kind of set those foundations. You didn't just jump straight into being married together. It was sure. over time. So I think that's a really key point as well. So you really get to know each other. And like you said, then you, you've, over that course of time, you know what's good, how you push each other, if you can vibe together. Because if someone gets uncomfortable and then retracts and doesn't like that, then that's not going to be a good partnership as well, right? So kind of learning all of those ins and outs and then, I like the way you put it where he put you to the fire. You had to actually make a decision at the end of the day whether this was going somewhere or not. So I think uh, a lot of good good nuggets of information there, Lev. So thank you. Uh, I'd like to end with one question. And you kind of touched a little bit on this already. But if you had to allocate your success between three factors, one being drive, skill, and luck, how would you kind of split your success between those three? Um, I think drive is probably number one for me. I mean, cause, cause we sort of talked a little bit on this, but just the sort of intensity of drive. It's also a curse for me, honestly. I mean, you know, I just can't relax. <laughs> so, but that, but that, that is uh, always pushing me forward. And so I, there's just not a lot of resting. And so if it hadn't been these things, it would have been probably something else, you know? And, um, and so that's probably the biggest one. Um, s- s- hmm. You know, I'm like I'm someone who likes to believe a little bit in rugged individualism and that, you know, there's some combination of a drive and skill. But, you know, of course, there's an amount of luck. I think um, I think the luck is big. And so especially in the business partnership relationship, you know, and, and the timing of it, I wasn't ready for that sort of engagement with anyone in a business perspective, um, except at that time that I met him probably, you know, in my whole life. And so that was lucky. And then there was him was lucky. And then we, you know, I was lucky to be given a lot just developmentally access education and resources and, you know, all those kinds of things. So probably luck is, is next big or 
honestly his biggest drive. And then skill is something I acquired through training. And um, it's a little bit of a digression, but I sort of learned through doing more through than explicit teaching. It's a type of mind style. And so I, I certainly have acquired some skills, but they're through practice and teaching and exposure. So my career requires a certain amount of competency as, as a doctor. So in that sense, skill is important, but, um, but I'm not sure otherwise it was the driving factor in some of these things as much. Um, yeah. Fantastic. So thank you so much, Dr. Lev. We'll put the links to all three companies below so people can learn more about you and uh, reach you directly from there. So thank you so much for your time. Of course. Thanks for being. I appreciate it.